me and one of my friends, the only friend of mine who never used drugs, uh, we done a sponsored skydive. And when I was 19, it was one night where I couldn't get cocaine. And uh, I broke into the family home to steal some of the money, and I did. And there was an episode of This Morning On with Phil and Holly, and they had a person on it who was describing what happens when someone's being groomed. And when I overheard it, it just filled me with rage, and it made me remember everything I'd been through. And then when I started doing more digging, I was like, I found that he was a director of these youth hostels and had all these positions of power and stuff. And that's what pushed me to really want to report it because I thought, it's not just me. Jai D, and we're on. Today we have the honour and the privilege to welcome Aidan Martin to the podcast. Um, welcome. Welcome, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. It's good to be here. No, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. And I was, we were laughing there in the car on the way over. It could have been a podcast in itself in the way over yeah. the car. It was class. So thank you very much for coming. Fantastic, mate. Um, just a kind of background of, of you, um, Aidan. I mean, you've went through a kind of series journey yeah, from a young time. boy. Mm. You're an author. <laughs> read your book Euphoric Recall hard-hitting stuff about being sexually abused as a teenager drug and alcohol addiction Mm. porn addiction Mm. trauma in your life when it comes to your grandfather passing away through cancer and your younger brother Mm. DJ Mm. um, at 14 Mm. passing away from um, cancer and your young son who had cancer as well at two and a half so you've went You've went through the mill a wee bit course, uh, over the year journey. I always um, say that I've gone through enough traumas to have lived three lifetimes. Yeah. That's the way I describe it. Yeah, you mentioned 100%. that. You're three decades yeah. of trauma. Yeah. 100%. So before we get right into the nitty gritty of the book and the, the success and other stuff that you're doing, like you to tell us about, obviously you've got three brothers and that's what related to me. It's very similar to us in terms of we grew up three brothers very very similar no far in age apart so I would like to start there back in Livingston growing up shoot away tell us so talk to us how was it so I'm the middle child of three brothers right uh, my big brother Shane who's six years older right and my brother Declan who we all call DJ who is um, six years younger wow um, me and Shane were streetwise we grew up in Ladywell which is an area we love but recognised as socially deprived so there was a lot of a lot of violence. Um, Declan was a lot more gentle and shy and, and, and not quite... Violence, sorry, I didn't say, say violence in terms of what, what, what gang violence, violence between the brothers, violence between families, what, what, what level? Violence on the streets. Yes, um, streets. Violence, violence in the school. Everywhere. Yeah, went to, <laughs> went to high school where for me it was just about survival. Um, you know, we'd have lads coming off the street into the school to fight with our lads. And that was just seen as normal and, and where you grew up. I mean, there were some beautiful things about where I grew up, but the older you got, the more the violence was prevalent. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where you know, turning a corner or walking under an underpass, um, you know, that's where you got your fight or flight because there was there was danger there, potential danger there. Um, and it was all normalised. All this kind of stuff was totally normalised. Not just normalised, but I think it was encouraged and you felt as if you'd a badge. Felt part, maybe part of something, I don't know, but yeah, yeah. So we were, were you as involved in a gang then? As, as, as I, I wouldn't describe it as being in gangs or anything like that because I think that would be too sensationalised. I think it was more just tribal and territorial. Did you have a name? 
We had a name, it was LYT. There we go. We were <laughs> yeah. the HP, we were the HPT. <laughs> HP to Harbour Boy Troops. But that's what I'm saying. So you had that. that, that but that, that was like, you didn't even, it's not as if we initiated ourselves into that. It was just you're from Ladywell, uh, Ladywell Young Team. The songs. Yeah, yeah. You had Craig's Hill and everyone called it Crazy Hill. And then Nightstridge was called K Toy. So all these names were there before. And we use, were they were they areas where they very close to each other because we, we used to call it the three towns, didn't we? Ross and Salk at Stevenson. And that's where the rivalry came for you talk about walking under underpasses. I get that when you used to go through over the bridge into Salkets straight away to fight or flight. But you got addicted to that level of feeling, I feel. So were you very close to each other in terms of the areas where, and you mentioned that yeah. the school's fighting. <clears throat> so, um, Craig's Hill, Knightsridge and Ladywell, they're all on top of each other basically. And the high school I went to was the place where all the kids from all those areas went. Now all those areas, and again, without I'm not being disrespectful, but all those areas are recognised as being socially deprived mm -hmm. according to the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. So that's the government that's recognised these areas are socially deprived. So all these areas are recognised as socially deprived areas and all the kids from those areas went to the same school which to me was under-resourced and at the time voted as one of the worst schools uh, in the country. So there was a level of violence that was normalised both on the streets and in the school and you internalised all that and I, I agree with you, I think there was a part of us that thrived on the buzz of it as well. Of course, 100%, yeah. 100%. But like we've seen it as well, but the, the, you don't see the, the, the massive violence in the, You'll know back at the school in terms of well, well, did you what, what serious kind of violence did you see growing up in terms of when it, when, when it was the kind of the street fight that we're talking about? One of the worst things I remember seeing was being I was still a kid and hearing the commotion outside and seeing a guy in his dressing gown chasing another guy down the street and kicking him to the curb and stomping his head into the curb and. I've been terrified and running to my mum and dad's room. And I see my dad, he's technically my stepdad, but yeah. running to their room and I'm like, oh, someone's getting their head stomped in the pavement outside. And and that wasn't something that my parents were shocked about. It was like, oh yeah, it'll be fine, it'll be That's fine. That's a crazy thing. Yeah, and I try not to sensationalise these things and make it like it was good for us, right? No. But there was a level of violence that was always under the surface and it would poke its head up and it was normalised and... For example, at the school, you'd be jumping each other and then out with the school, that's when like weapons and stuff would be used. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but it was just, it was, it was never, it was never questioned. It was always a case of this is a, a normal thing. No one has said that it's abnormal. It's only now being educated, being in recovery, having kids of my own, looking back and thinking that was crazy. Like that kind of violence and being hyper vigilant all the time and on edge all the time. It's not a natural state to be. It's like, I do trauma training and we talk about being in the red zone or the blue zone or the green zone. Mm -hmm. And the red zone's where you're in that place of threat all the time. Right. And you're always hyper alert, like being a meerkat. Do you know what I mean? Looking about for threats all the time. Yeah. And that's what I it was like. The fight or flight yeah. kicking in at that point so to I, a certain stage. I don't want to make out that folk were getting like stabbed in the classroom no. and all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously things like that could happen, but it was more that, that, yeah. that the level of threat was always there. And everything got solved with violence um, or slagging people off, but usually resulted in violence at the end. So 
And to me, there was all these lads who were actually really scared. Slagging people off, and I think that, that, that that's a big thing. I think it's seen, that scene in, in the, the male public is, a, is a, a thing that gets done. Like, I see it all the time, even now, even in WhatsApp chats, like, slagging, 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 and then the, the bravado is... Yeah, I, don't, I just don't. I, I don't get that. It's something that doesn't sit well with me. But yeah, that, that, was, that was there as well, though. I mean, wow. So I, I look at my upbringing, not up. not through my family, but where I came from. It feels like almost like a cult because you all had to have a French crop if you were a boy. French crop haircut. And is this family-wise? Yeah. No, 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 not not family. Just just the just area. The area, area boys, right, right? Yes, yeah. The so certain level of clothes, right? Go back. You on. had to have your hoodies and your Rockport boots and. Mm -hmm your gold chains and you could only have your left ear pierced and so there was all these abnormal rules that we didn't make that were just there and like I remember being in my school and there was only one boy that had long hair everyone else had to have like short hair short hair yeah I remember seeing uh, Italian football or South American football and seeing the men with long hair mm -hmm. and thinking why don't we have long hair here and why, why are you going to get battered for having long hair if you're or from if you're here you were a hippie and you were stigmatised so it's, yeah. it was all these strange rules and another thing me and my best friend needed braces on our teeth when mm -hmm. we were younger and we both broke the braces um, so you wouldn't get battered at school and and to me looking back that's the, that is a if you're going to batter someone for wearing braces it's because you're terrified of them bettering themselves Course. And yeah. I think we didn't have the words to articulate all no, that. Of back course, then. You never. But looking back, you can see that there was a lot of people who were suffering from social deprivation and other traumas and mental health stuff going on. And to see anyone change or be different or improve themselves meant that they were a threat to your way of life and your normality. So the slagging off culture as well, that, that began really early. That began with, in, in a way that we couldn't even understand it. Oh, he's got braces on a teeth. Let's go and do them. Because he's got braces on his teeth. And it's the, because you were different. That's, and that's and the fact that... An easy, an easy, easy person just to, to pick on. Because you were different. Let's know, Let's look at exactly what that is. That's a child being forced to break their braces out their mouth. Which are metal anyhow. To be scared of... Now, I get it. I totally get it. Because although we were fighters and we, 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 we tried it, we were really, really streetwise... That level of embarrassment we touched, we, we went through obviously with the religion that we get brought up in. It was very, but to be forced to, to take metal out your mouth because of the, 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 the stigma that that had brought it was the really fear. shows. It was the fear because obviously shows. you were different from yeah. them. No, I mean, so you just and wanted to be I, like them. I don't think the ones that done the bullying or stuff were bad people either. No. Mm. I, that's, I, I don't look back on these years and think those were the bad guys and those were the good guys. I see a lot of people that were brought up in... No, because you were probably a part of both as well. Yeah, of course. Growing yeah. up, it was just, it's, it's just so national. We, we would, like, even my group of friends, we kind of look at ourselves as like them between us because we weren't the, the hard guys, we weren't the, the geekies. Like but, uh, we would slag off other groups of people as well. Of course, of course. Like the goths or, do you know what of I mean? Of course, um, it's mad. And so we were no better than the people who were giving mm -hmm. us grief. It was just, it was the done Different thing. It was levels. so normalised. And um, like I, I think about later in life, so you asked about violence. The violence started escalating after school. Right. So at school it was like, you wouldn't have a fair one-on-one -on -one fight or a square. And that was secondary school. So secondary school, you'd yeah. be in your gang fights and stuff, right? And again, I don't, I don't say I was in a gang per se, but you had the gang fights. And see, when, sorry, you go back to the schools because I'm just looking back at us at schools. Like we were the same. Like we all 
what in a, uh, a school of draws in a academy, but in our school there were people from a draws and an Socrates. And although we had a rivalry out with our school, in school it was seen as there were no rivalry. Yeah. But mm-hmm. what we did is we fought with the Catholic school mm-hmm. that was across the part. So with the fighting in your schools, was it usually was it religion involved? No, it was nothing to do with religion. It was it was But there was, wasn't there wasn't I was ours wasn't about Religion, because no, obviously people their from Socrates used to go to that, that, that Aye, the, the Catholic really. school. But it was it was the school difference, and one was uh, Catholics and one was Protestants. So there must mm. have been a level of of that in it. But I get what you're saying. Well, we, we were all fighting each other in our school. We weren't fighting our school. Right, so we just wait wait so to get to geography. No, I don't. We get no- that. I got wow. my nose smashed right outside a class like modern studies or geography. Wow, man. We had another high school in Craig's Hill, Crazy Hill, and that got knocked down. So then all the the kids were put into this one school in Ladywell, and I think that was part of the problem. And then at that time, there were some great teachers, but there were some really burnt-out teachers that if violence or bullying was happening in the class, they would look the other way, so you didn't feel safe. And rather than looking at the reasons behind why is this kid underperforming, why is this kid uh, misbehaving, there was no looking into the background of the kid. It was like putting them down to the lowest level of classes. We got um, what's called punnies, punishment exercises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We got put in what was called foundation, which was the lowest classes. Yeah. And then you went to this place, place called base, which is where all the problem kids yes. got stuck to do their punnies. Mm-hmm. I was there, yeah. That was the system. Mad. That was the whole system. There was no, what's going on for this person? And for me, it was like, me and my pals would sometimes have to find fire exits to get out of school. So we didn't have to get jumped or something like that. And that was in school. The real violence of people like making attempts on each other's life and stuff that happened after school. The drug escalation right. happened after school. But like I, I got alcohol in school and that's where I discovered alcohol in school. So, so what came first for you? Was it the drugs or was it the, the alcohol that came first? Porn came first. Porn came, porn. right. Take us, to, take us back <clears throat> then, right? So that was the start of the addiction. So tell us about that. I know... Your papa, the taxi driver, and stuff. So yeah, it's. Uh, I was. I couldn't stop because I think to myself, did we all have porn addictions at one point? Do you know what I mean? To so your story, but you're just talking. But this will be interesting. This this will be so, good to so tell us. A family member had tapes, VHS tapes. No different to someone sending a clip by WhatsApp. No, that's today it. Or, yeah, the groups. It's when you said that. I was online. like, yes. So they're constant. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a done thing. People yeah. had tapes and magazines, and I just discovered these tapes when I was 10 years old. And right. when everybody was in bed sleeping, I'd be going through and watching them. And again, I became addicted instantly. It gripped me like that, like Bump. instantly. Mad. And the tapes were a variation of all different types of hardcore porn. Nothing illegal, just hardcore porn. But I was 10 and I was gripped, like I say, instantly. And then I didn't know I was an addict dealer. I was, I was too young to understand any of this. And, and what it was doing was it was teaching me to lie, teaching me to deceive. I was self-soothing from a young age. Um, I was already in the cycles of addiction. But it also damaged any ideas of what I had about romantic relationships. Regard, mm. Regardless of sexuality, it damaged any ideas I had about what to expect from a, a romantic partner. Was that any level of embarrassment behind that, or was it just... No, it wasn't embarrassment. It was, this is extremely graphic material I'm watching, so relationships are all going to be sexual and they're all going to be full of this graphic kind of behaviour. Now, that's not to say you can't have that in a relationship in a healthy way, but to have that as your starting point mm. 
oh, I need to have someone that's really like sexual and that will do all these uh, naughty things with me. And mm. um, that's not based on love or, or foundations or mutual respect or building up a healthy relationship and then exploring your sexuality together. So from a young age, you're like, well, this is what r- romance is. This is what um, love is. Mm. And I also didn't know my biological father and I had that attachment issue with him. Not been in my life. And again, it's at a time in life where we're not talking about attachment issues or abandonment or, or adverse childhood experiences. We mm. don't have that vocabulary. We don't know about addiction or class inequality. We don't know any of that stuff. We don't know that we're at a school that's letting us down. We don't know that we're in a street where we have no conflict um, resolution tools or um, emotional regulation. So we're we're let down by this lack of education and lack of knowledge. So when you're 10 and you've got all this internal stuff going on and you discover this thing and you're like... <laughs> That makes me feel good. It's like a big button. I'm going to keep pressing that button because I feel good every time I do this. So that came before the substances. But I would describe porn as the first drug because it was the first thing I got addicted to. And you used to get this because obviously your your grandfather was a wee Randy Elm old boy. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had the, the tapes, yeah, and you used to obviously go downstairs and, and watch them when everyone was in their bed. So he yeah. was just like any other yeah. person that had porn. You yeah, mentioned that the WhatsApps are rife every day. I don't think there's a guy that you meet that isn't in a guy lad's WhatsApp group where it gets sent daily. I mean, you, know you, can, I mean? you can do everything on your phone now and you can gamble, you can order pretty much anything you want that you need if it's for addiction reasons or otherwise, you can do it on your phone or your laptop. Mm. It's weird how now then when you talk about it being in a basket of a car, it's it, the stigma changes when it... There's no really, there's, there's no really any it, difference. It was in a cupboard. It, it wasn't in a car. Was it not in a cupboard? It was in a basket in a cupboard at the right. back of the house. Got you, got you, which got you. Usually would be quite a discreet place, but because I discovered them, uh-huh. and it was purely by accident, because we used to have loads of like home movies, and mm-hmm. your your grandparents would record tapes of like childhood things like Beauty and the Beast and yeah. the Never Ending Story yes, and all that. Yes, yes, yes. And I discovered something that wasn't that, and I think. I remember the first time, I don't want to say anything too graphic, but no. I remember the first time watching the first tape and not quite understanding what I was seeing, but still being drawn in and then going back to it. Crazy, yeah. And you were probably thinking that was just normal. This is what happens when you're in a sexual relationship. That's what or, you, yeah. you, you, you spoke about. Yeah. And it, it was what I found interesting about that there. It was the fact that that then gave you the tools that allowed you to take into your addiction because the lying started, deceiving, the sneaking about, that that is all class what we needed to, <laughs> to yeah. say what we needed. But it, it's the same tools as what you used into the next stage, which was... Alcohol was next. I right. was 13. What was your first drink? There's an interesting subject. Um, half bottle of whiskey. What? what? Really? You never... <laughs> he didn't start <laughs> I remember Diamond White. That was my Diamond, Diamond White. White. Sorry, and Lager it was. We had Marydown and uh, White Lightning and yes, yes, all that yes. kind of cider yeah. stuff. Mm. Um, but it was half bottles of whiskey and half bottles of vodka and a friend in drama class would bring them in and we don't know if his... What age? What age are then? 13. We were 13. 13, right. And his okay, dad had sure. a corner shop. And I don't know if his dad was giving it to him to bring in and pun or he was nicking it and doing it, but me and my pals were scraping to get our money buying it. Mm-hmm. And we were drinking um, straight whiskey and straight vodka. And it's like I always say, at the time you think the attraction is the feelings that's given to you. So you feel gallus, you can you can talk to lassies, you can fight lads, you know, all that kind of stuff. But really, 
what's really about is all the feelings it's taken away. It's taken away fear, it's taken away anxiety, it's taken away this um, lack of self-worth and self-esteem. It's given you false feelings of love. At the time, I was already suicidal as well, so it was taking away feelings of being suicidal. You're at 13, you were suicidal. Oh, yeah. that For high school years, I was suicidal, yeah. Why? Why, mate? Why, why were you? Because everything around me felt... I mean, I had a beautiful, loving, caring family, so it's not as if I came from a broken home, but I had this knowledge that my dad wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I... I really hated the violence in the streets in the school. I hated all of that. Even though we'd go about acting hard and jumping into fights and all of that, I actually hated it. I hated that environment. And the rest of growing up in Ladyville was beautiful. I loved the gala days. I loved playing football on the streets. And mm-hmm. I loved that we were all a generation Trinity, of outdoor yes, people. Yeah, we were all, yeah, Everyone knew each other mm-hmm. by first name terms. I loved all that stuff, but I hated the violence and how quick it was all the time. But I love the fact, sorry, but I, I so relate, but I love the fact how you can distinguish between the good times and the bad times. Sometimes when I think back, I can't, it was all madness and I cannot never remember the... I, you can when you start sitting down and think about it. When you think of some areas of your life, it's just all dark. But every time you've mentioned it, which I think is class, you're still able to switch and still see the good parts of growing up. That side of it, which, let's face it, young people don't have that areas that we had when we were at the house in the morning and, and but I like I like, I like I also how you can defer the two wouldn't want to be disrespectful to this area and the no, people that, mean. that mm. come from that area well, because mm. I met some of the most amazing people in my life in these areas and um, you know I remember having this swimming teacher at the school who taught me how to swim and I got all my badges on my trunks and I was one of the best swimmers in the area yeah um, I loved certain parts of it but in an area that does have social deprivation it breeds violence, it breeds depression, it, it breeds drug use and those things were there from a very young age mm. and I don't know, I just felt like the world was a scary bad place. It was like I was saying about being in that red zone all the time mm-hmm. and then the, the porn would be the soothing zone for me yeah. which is your green zone taking you into that so- but yeah. n- not in a natural way. Yeah. And How did you hide the the alcohol I, from oh, your parents? Wow. Aye. People ask that, but it, not it, smelling it on your breath. Or how how did you hide that? Get, we used to get. I know you used like, to put like like or, or chewing gum in that kind of stuff. But the thing is, parents were quite smart as well. And your dad was strict, the same as ours. So that's how dad. I was like that because he yeah. came into our house. It was military. It yeah. was military. I wouldn't so, say it was military. Well, it was something. And a Friday night, and a Friday night when he was expecting you coming in and was coming in, it was military. You were stopped at the door and. You, you oh, also yeah. smell your breath in your hands. Yeah, you've been yeah. smoke. Mm. There's military, man. Mm. But anyway. So, so we would we would lie to our parents about where we were and we would camp out. Oh, we've done as well. Listen, they'd mm. every right. I'm not saying that they never had every right because their boys are coming in at four o'clock in the morning. We're 12, 11. We've been out, sneaked to. I used to climb at three stories windy to climb down that drain pipe because they'd lock the door. But... All nighters. All we used night, to, call, yeah, we, we used to do them done. in the town. We used to do them up. We went up the Cannon Hill and they Right, uh, I mean, then we just go about like the top end of a dross and that, maybe going to salt it, that kind of stuff. And then in the morning, you used to steal, steal the milk, the milk, and the orange juice from the, mm. <laughs> from the orange juice the, and the papers. And yeah. sometimes you'd get the rolls, and on odd occasion you get the dough. A couple of listen, they were that that was prize on a Saturday. Sometimes they were a couple of couple of <laughs> uh, what do you call them shutters you had to kind of jimmy up to get them but uh, they were good so how did you kind of get away with it just similar tactics well, sometimes we didn't sometimes we would oh. get caught for it but mm. it was again a very normalised thing 
that all the kids were having a drink on mm, a Friday was, night. That was um, that. I don't think we used to walk about in the streets banging into our groups of folk, and it would either be, "Oh, this is a sound group, and we'll hear a drink with them," or "This is a dodgy group, and we're going to get in a fight." fight. So again, that was well, something that was it was a normalised thing, and you would just find ways to deceive your parents. And I think they probably knew like, it comes mm. with the territory around here. So um, yeah, and. By the time you get to 14 or 15, you're saying that you're staying at your pals or whatever and <clears throat> you're camping out and doing it like that. Aye, crazy. And wait, so so that was the drink. So what was the drug? What was the first drugs? So the first drug I took was weed and I didn't like it because Never. I'm an uppers guy. Not anymore, of course, but um, <clears throat> I would discover I was an uppers guy. But weed first and then ecstasy and speed after and, that. Uh, uh, and... So so weed so the uh, so the weed started and as you know when when the weed starts you start getting in the groups of the people that are punting the Charlie or, or the ex back then it probably too early for for I know no I never seen cocaine till way later it was the same Co- cocaine was later for me yeah 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 yeah, um, yeah. it was weed and everybody was we just stand in a circle um, somewhere outside where your alcohol and then people brought out joints and you would do it because you wanted to be part of the group but. Yeah. It was never a drug that done anything for me. It just made me feel you know, spaced out and slowed down, and I didn't like it. But when I discovered um, ecstasy and speed... And what age were the ecstasy the same? Was that 14, 15? Between, I'd, I'd say between 15 and 16. I'd, I definitely was heavy into it by the time I was 16 years old. Right, yeah. okay. Okay, and, and like with ecstasy, obviously the dance scene comes into that. Mm-hmm. So did, 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 did you like going to the raves where you were you and about, so talk to us about that? We obviously, I don't consider my generation as being the real ravers that got the real rave scene. I think we mm-hmm. got the, the fumes of the rave scene, but we went to clubs like Room at the Top and Bathgate, yeah, which was I've the been, big one. Yeah, we went there a few times as well. It was, um, I describe it like you went to these places knowing you either had the best night of your life or you're leaving in an ambulance. It was one of the two, there was no in-between. But that's where we'd go, we'd sneak into clubs, we'd, and it wasn't very hard to sneak into clubs. You were 16, you were getting in, and everybody was taking eckies, everyone was taking speed, and you felt like um, euphoric. And the music, sorry, the music matched how the drug made you feel. Mm-hmm. And because everybody was doing it, and I also talk about leaving school at that time, with no qualifications and with no chance of owning a house and no chance of owning a car and, and not knowing how to form relationships and even trying to get a council house at that point would have been 12 to 16 years waiting list. So, because I was living in Livingston, a new town, but at one point you could pick the house you wanted to stay in, the council house. But by the time I'm leaving school, that had all changed. Right. So, we're all leaving school. Most of us were leaving in fourth year. Some of us didn't even finish no. our last exams. Mm-hmm. So, you're leaving got this internal dialogue that says I'm worthless and I've got no future and, and you don't have the education even to understand it all so why would you not go straight into that scene so we went head first into it and you say dialogue but you're not good enough and that comes from all areas your friends through the slagging right up to the teachers especially the type of people that I know I was where you seen it Started off like I was heavily dyslexic, so so it's just when you spoke about the you were outside. Started off you're outside in the classroom, but you were there with a group of friends that are always there. Before you know it, you were in the remedial class where you were playing computers or or whatever. So you were getting told even from every angle that that you weren't good enough, and then you're getting set off in a lot of these schemes. When I know I went straight into them, they were government-led schemes. You were going, you were going into an environment which was mad. 
straight into another environment which was meant to be work which was similar but worse but what industry than school what, what industry exactly was no so that was construction was loads of different you were going in and you could have been in construction you could you were just back in a mad classroom and getting kind of paid what, what I mean by asking what industry was there was nothing in my area no we had them yeah. um, in West Lothian there was Sky TV that was the only big that business would, that was around it was a call centre so there was no like real pathway there was no one at school talking about going to college or going to uni like I'm a writer there was no one at school that's like you're really good at writing do you know what I mean mm, you're, no, you're, you're, you're a writer great. you could become a writer well no one told us this we didn't get educated like that so yeah. it was like um, and there's, listen there's no shame or no disrespect in working as a sales assistant or working in a factory or anything like that I think thank you to say that because I'm a salesman myself <laughs> but, well, I mean it's, I mean, it's like um, even I if you, you. even if you want I to do something you. really great with your life, and you think that you have to go on a, a pathway there, we were told that that was it for us. That that was it. That you're that was your limit. That, that was that's, it. That's, that was your status. So in you, life. you feel like um, <sighs> what away. is the point of any of it? And like I'd already gone through grooming and abuse through school, leaving school, so I'd already experienced that as well. So for me, it was like when I talk to people. And they might say, like, why would you become an addict? I always flip the question and say, why would you not become an addict? Mm. Like, and all my friends were in the same boat. And a lot of my friends, and I love these guys dearly, and some of them had really strong um, family ties that supported them, but some of them never had the benefit of that. Mm -hmm. So some of them went through the care system, for example, Mm -hmm. and never knew love and never knew attachment and never felt wanted and never never felt needed. But we found it together in our group. You got your identity, you got your purpose, you got your drive, your direction, your structure, and the drug subculture, and then you got all the music and stuff that made it all feel like this is the best time of your life. We're going to be forever young. We're going to be like this forever. Forever. It's mad yeah. how, how you've how, so, how you've got that feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of mad. But let me just take you back, Aiden. Mm-hmm. Right. So, round about fifteen, sixteen. That's when you were using drugs. Mm-hmm. Right. Earlier, yeah, for the last few years. But I'm going to take you back to when you were 14, mm-hmm. when you had your first interaction with Derek, who you mm-hmm. speak about. Mm-hmm. You touched in your it book, there, yeah. yeah. Who groomed you as a yeah. teenager? Talk to us about that, please, mate. Yeah. So his his, his real name wasn't Derek. I've changed his name yeah. in the book. We moved from Ladywell to an area called Ealyburn, which is a more developed area. I would consider that a middle class area. Uh, my mum and my stepdad had done uh, Maggie Thatcher had the right to buy scheme you could buy your council house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. use it as a stepping stone so they moved us and we moved into Ealyburn it was the New Year's Eve going into from 1999 into 2000 so it was the millennium we moved in on New Year's Eve there's this song by Travis called Driftwood which was mm-hmm. out at the time Yeah. so these are all the things I'm thinking about and my dad um, I call my stepdad my dad just for no confusion because my biological father wasn't in my life he thought I should get a paper round. And I got a paper round at this shop at the time. It was called All Days. It's never co-op. And, you know, I would phone porn numbers on there. On the fo- like You'd phone them on your house phone. It was automated, premium rate numbers, etc. But at that point as well, we got a computer for the first time. And we got the internet for the first time. So I was 13, just about to turn 14. And I used chat rooms, which were, it was AOL, so it was the dial-up and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used chat rooms that were called Teen Chat. And this is why I talked about the porn from earlier, from age 10, desensitising you and how dangerous that is, because something that was common in the chat rooms was older men would talk to you. And 
and that didn't seem abnormal to me. Mm. In fact, there was a level of attraction for me and getting this attention from older men. And I think that I've known now with the therapy I've had that it was a replacement for my biological father. 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 Right? I was thinking that. Yeah. But the person that I referred to as Derek started speaking to me and it was it was a lot more like a slow burn. You would get guys that would message you and they would say really extreme things. And, and again, that was quite, I was a young person and I was like, we never had the internet, so it was all new. But when the person I called Derek started messaging me, it was slow and it was like a friendship was being built up. It was like trust was being built up. Mm. And I look back and I know that was grooming. But at the time, I thought I had a friend. I thought I had someone I could talk to. And so I'd tell him about the violence I was getting caught up with. I'd tell him about my stepdad being so strict. And I mentioned doing the paper round because when I phoned these premium rate numbers, my I had a £500 bill or something along those lines mm. from BT. <laughs> and my dad came home and he was like, through the building and he's like, what's this, blah, blah, blah. And he phoned the number himself. And I was like, so, like, it felt so cringy and guilty and that he'd listened to it. And... I remember my dad saying, you're going to pay for that out of your paper round money. Um, and I remember messaging Derek online and saying, oh no, I'm in big trouble with my dad. And I remember him taking my side and saying, you know, this is what young guys do and stuff like that. And and so this is this is why I've got, I can remember the timeline so well between us moving in to the new place, getting internet, having the paper round. I had a mobile phone at the time, so we had like the BT selling it phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad made me paint the fence for that. So my dad was really good at teaching us practical yeah, values. Yeah. But then I'd be texting Derek on that. And I remember him texting me when I was in school. I remember him, I remember telling him that I'd be around my friends. And so he would text pretending to be a woman in case they read it. Mm-hmm. So to know to do those things, you know, showed his level of thinking. Mm. And we spoke for, I would say, at least a year. Um, and there'd be times I'd be suicidal and I'd be... I'd be sitting typing, I'd be crying my eyes out. And I, I remember I remember this so vividly. I remember typing saying, I'm crying. And I remember him replying, I'm crying too. And that was one of the most you know, let's talk about getting your hooks in. That was one that was one of those times mm. that I was like, I thought in that moment, I was like, Oh, he understands that, me. Mm. He understands me. He he gets me. Um and he was from down south and he said that um he had a textile company and that he would it would take him up to West Lothian. I didn't even really fully understand at the time how small West Lothian is. And that Livingston, where I'm from, is a new town and that the chances of someone from down south having business up there is probably really rare. He probably created that as a way of coming up. But um, so he was like, oh, we could meet and stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, I remember talking to him about the porn habit and stuff and I don't know if that's what opened the door to us talking to each other about like sexual fantasies and stuff, but that's where that began and where that eventually led was going to hotel rooms with this guy and I don't want to talk about no 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 beyond course. that but um, and that confused me a lot about my sexuality as well it made me wonder because I was like I'm a gay I'm a bisexual like I didn't understand that I wanted my dad in my life I didn't understand that because of feeling suicidal and, and wanting to get away from the violence and again you look back and you know that you were streetwise. You know that you could handle school. You know how you handle lads. You know how you chat up birds. And that's not how I talk now, by the way. But I just like that's the mindset you had at the time. But the internet was brand new. So there was no education over that. Nobody knew that was happening. It's not as if your parents would see the danger of that that we know could be there now. Because you're on chat rooms and you're like, this is before Facebook and stuff. There's no profile pictures. There's no. 
videos, there's no information, there's no like um, updates about where someone's working now or none of that. You've just got a wee avatar mm-hmm. and you would say ASL, age, sex, location. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and everything was so anonymous that you didn't know who you were talking to. The first time I seen what it looked like was the first time we met. Really? Yeah. Wow. And he came from England. He he met you in and a, and a work, McDonald's and a work so van outside yeah. of McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. And how did that? How did that? How did you feel when? Because you were waiting outside McDonald's. It felt that we'd gone from something that felt like I guess in a fantasy world to something in my real world. It was like watching a film and Ken that scene in the ring when the lassie comes out the screen. It was like oh, fuck. Yeah. it was like. Yeah. As in, what I mean is, it's like you're watching something, but now this something is here. I'm with you. In your Mm. real world now. And the excitement and everything that was going along with it. You think as well, because you see this person, and that's a shock, because you're like, this is some older guy. And and then you're also not understanding why you're here waiting to meet him. You don't know why you're there. And then you're you're walking into the the van, and you don't know why you're doing that. Um, And for me at the time, it was like I almost felt I had to do it. And it's. There can be like stereotypes about what these people are like. There was no feeling of that I was in danger. There was no feeling of threat. There was no you better get in the van or this is gonna. It was nothing like it was no. quite the opposite. It was like more like a. No, I get it. Totally you don't, you get don't it. need to come in the van. You can do what you want. Um, and then I go in the van and we drive to a hotel. And then with these situations, and you'll know that's why it's so hard. You can blame yourself. You I did, can talk. I did for a of course, long time. you did, and I, and I know that, and I know how hard, obviously, it is when you're a lot younger than that, and, and trauma like that happens. You can still blame yourself. I still blame myself for a very long time. So, at you at fourteen, it would have been a hell of a lot harder for you to still realise you're still a kid. This guy, by the sounds of it, was an absolute well, someone, black so, belt at doing this. He, oh, he, he was good. He was good at what he did the way that year, and the fact he waited to that point to cut that emotion with the crying but mm. I'm crying as well because that, that's, that got you that was mm. when you uh, yeah the, that was that was when the trust was fully with him yeah, 100% so, someone described it to me just recently um, and she said he had to overcome all the external things that told him this was wrong and all the internal things who said this to you? This, this, I don't want to say no it, no no, no but, um, but is it a friend a good friend? yeah yeah, yeah right, it's, good. It's, um, right. it's a woman I trust uh, a lot and she said to me he had to overcome all the external things telling him it was wrong and all the internal things telling him it was wrong to come all the way up and, and meet you. But and you weren't the first one, Aidan. No, I mean, you know I mean see, when, when it came round, I eventually did report it, and by the time I reported it, he was, he was dead, but I had to go through the whole process anyway and speaking to a detective, and she theorised that the textile driving job was a tool to get around the country. And I remembered when I was writing the book actually was going back over the book again and editing it and I remembered that he talked about a boy in London as well. So and, and and that's one of the reasons why I really had to report it. I found out that he was a, a director of a youth hostel down south. I don't want to say Fuck. which one, but he was a director of a couple of youth hostels um, down south where he was from and he was also a Christian pastor or had been and a youth worker, I and mean, when I, f- I found all this out almost accidentally because I'd come home much later in life. I was at uni and doing well, and came home, and there was an episode of this morning on with Phil and Holly, and they had a person on it who was describing what happens when someone's being groomed. 
and I overheard it because my partner was off work ill watching it. And when I overheard it, it just filled me with rage and it made me remember everything I'd been through. Wow. And I started to Google him. I'd never Googled or looked for him or anything and I started mm -hmm. to Google him and I found him and I found this page which is still, you can still see it, it's still online. And it's a testimonial on a religious page and it described all these things that talked about his textile job and everything as part of it. Um, and then when I started doing more digging, I was like, I found that he was a director of these youth hostels and had all these positions of power and stuff. And that's what pushed me to really want to deport it because I thought, it's not just me. There, there's other people. Who else so. is involved? Mm, yes. Mm. Yeah. And what, what age what age were you when, when that, the, the, the holly and that come on the telly that's triggered you to, listen, I need to maybe... This is what was, happened to me. Was, this was my fault. It was during that realization. My, it was during my first time at uni. So my first time at uni was between 2014 and 2017. So I must have been early thirties, late twenties, early thirties. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so last much time, later in life, yeah. Yeah, the last time yeah. I'd I'd spoken to him, and we'd sort of the the, the older I got and started understanding I didn't want to do it, that sort of tailed off being in contact with him. And then one time on MSN. Um, messenger I was about 20 or 21 it was around about the time my brother passed away and he, um, he logged on and it was the first time I'd seen his name on there for a long time and for for whatever reason in that moment I said to him why did you meet me when I was 15 and he's like he replied and said no you were 16 you were 16 and um, and then he logged off and that was the last the last mm. I ever spoke to him and it left me feeling so mixed because it was one of those moments when I was I was in my using addict life at the time, but it was the first time I'd had the opportunity and the courage to question him. But it was done in a way where he could just disappear. Mm. Um, yeah, and then it was I was just left with it again. Yeah. You touched on your yeah brother, mm -hmm. Declan, DJ, yeah. mm. um, but your grandfather had a massive influence in and. In, yeah. in your life and your big brother Shane's life. Yeah, granddad was like, um, and I don't want to be disrespectful to my my stepdad who I call my dad because, you know, he gave me a lot of good things in life, um, even though we didn't have a great relationship at times. My granddad was like the male figure in my life who I had this natural bond and chemistry and love with. Mm -hmm. And we'd go to market, we'd go to Ingleston Market a lot and stuff and he was funny and... Just, I just had this strong bond of love with him and my big brother even more. He was like a real father figure to my big brother. And he got ill um, on a Friday and then died on a Tuesday. So, And like before before he got ill, he told me he was dying. And like I spoke to my family and they've all said he's never told anyone else this. There was nothing, um, nothing that could have told him or at least told us that he was dying. But he took me into a room in the house after I'd come home I got jumped at school I came home my eye was all burst he took me into a room I could tell he was worried about me and he was like son I'm dying and I don't have long left and like my granddad always told these wild tales and so I just thought even though he wouldn't tell sinister tales mm. his tales were always like humorous and being a secret agent and all that kind of stuff and um, but you know I kind of just I was in denial about about that happening um, but he was so so important to me and I think of him I talked to him every single day. He passed away when I was 15. And uh, I wish I could sit as an adult now and, and talk to him about life and ask mm -hmm. him, because he was in the Navy and stuff, and I wish I'd been 
old enough to ask him more about that because mm-hmm. I know how I know how much that mattered to him. He didn't ever go to the cinema, but he went to see Pearl Harbor, and he wasn't he didn't care about the love story. He just wanted to see again the the lifestyle of people who were serving their country. That's yeah. what mattered so much to him, and he lost one of his friends um, in service as well. So. I know how much that meant to him, and I wish I could. Have, I wish I could sit down with him now and say, "Tell me all about the Navy, Granddad." And, and it's just with the timelines, it's it's <clears throat> kind of falls in perfectly from like your dad filled, and he didn't fill it by the story, but the sound of thing didn't fill the void of your dad completely, but it was there. And then this other guy comes into your life, who we just spoke about mm-hmm. at a very similar time where we'd lost your Granddad. So it, it kind of so he his um, timing couldn't have been bloody I'd, perfect. He picked it himself. Do you know he, what I mean? I'd been talking to Derek for a good year before my granddad passed away. And when I say a year, it wasn't like every single day. But no, it, it was, was that first touch that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. very, very gradual. Yeah, yeah, so regular, very natural. Regular contact and um, and all kind of that. All ha- that was the time I think I lost my childhood innocence when. I mean, you kind of lose it with all that violence happening and, and substances and stuff and do. porn, but there was still a child in me. Mm-hmm. There was still, you know, someone who believed in the magic of, of life. And um, when I lost my granddad and the grooming went from online to meeting and having abuse happen, something changed. So I, and I, I describe it and I've written it in the book about it, it felt like, eventually it felt like being in the Truman Show. Mm-hmm. It felt like discovering that your whole world was fake. And um that's I get, that's, that. I get that. That can be both liberating when you don't have you don't care about anything, but that can be really dangerous because then the, you don't care about the violence anymore. Mm. You don't care about consuming drugs. You don't care about relationships. You don't care about yourself. Uh, you're hoping to die because I wanted to every day. I wanted to die. Um, so it's only liberating later in life. Now that I've I look at life in a way where I, I want to take positive risks. And I'm not scared to try things, but. Mm. When I was in so much pain and didn't have recovery or education or healing, then it, it worked in reverse. Um, it made me not care about life and, and think that everything was dangerous and being in that red zone all the time. That red zone you talk about, the, the, the kind of fight or flight area. You, you, you mentioned, it'd be good to kind of uh, touch on your brothers. You mentioned you two <coughs> tragedies, obviously, two, two main folk. Uh, and mentioned cancer before it's kind of fresh it's real it's raw it's relevant at this point in time mm. so it'd be very interesting to hear a wee bit about, about that story if you don't mind Aidan yeah. back there so, um, Declan was like I say he was the baby of the family he, he was he wasn't street wise he was he was gentle he was still funny and, and had all the same mad personality as me and his big brother but he wasn't a fighter he wasn't that kind of guy he was really really gentle kid um, I mean he was 10 he was diagnosed with one of the rarest cancers and in the UK, I can't pronounce it. So Darren, I've, you, I've, he tried I to pronounce it to I me can't. twice, and I just know it's a, it's a very, very it's rare, in, in, inoperable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. behind his left eye. Left so eye yeah, and it yeah. was touching his brain. It was the size of a lemon, and they told us right from the beginning, this is just a matter of time. So we've done all the things that a family would do. We've done uh, national campaigns, and again, it's before social media is a thing. So right. it's all done through like the Sun newspaper and um, on the news, on the telly and stuff, and. Ended up going to Russia to get treatment there. Wow. That was the end. Was so it was, that was, that was, because obviously in, yeah. in, in the UK, they couldn't do any more for, for, yeah. for DJ. Right, so what happened? You went then to Russia? 
So he would go there for it was like a experimental treatment. Oh, that's what I was um, going. You had mentioned that. that but again, we we believe that it gave him probably somewhere between six months to two years longer. Right. Because um, I, I I'm pretty sure it was during it was in right bang in the middle of his had cancer for four years before he passed away. So I think it was right bang in the middle of it where we decided to try that. And it was after speaking to him and asking him what he wanted to do. And he went from being this young wee lad to being so wise beyond his years, like so wise beyond his years, having gone through everything he went through. Um, wow. So he would go to Russia for treatment. And this is where some of my rock bottoms happened. And what age was DJ at this point when, when, when he found out he had cancer and then when you end up in the midway? So, so he was 10 when he found out, then so about 12, 12 years yeah, old. Yeah. Yeah, and wow, so at 12 years old, your family and... It basically, um, I can throw that. It basically went to his primary seven prom, and we, by this point, they already had a bandana and an eye patch because all the treatment they were, they were mm. still trying to give him treatment, even though they knew it was it was pointless. Yeah. So he was still getting the the effects like losing your hair and and then um, with the chemo and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. and then the, the tumor and stuff was like growing out his eye and growing through his nose, and and it might sound like I'm blasé saying that I'm really not. It's just I've spoke about it so much and. But basically, he didn't go to high school. So by the time he got to high school age, it was like he was just too ill um, to go and didn't want to. And we just, as a family, were like, you know what? He's not got many choices left, so we're not going to make him go to high school. When he was in Russia, when I was 19 years old, one of the first rock bottoms I ever had was um, me and one of my friends, the only friend of mine who never used drugs, and we'd done a sponsored skydive. And I wrote about this in the book, and mm-hmm. I always talk about this when I do talks because I want to let people know the reality is the addiction and we raised three grand towards this treatment and um, again there was no GoFundMe pages no Just Giving pages nothing like that it was in a brown paper bag one A4 sheet of paper and just money and when I was 19 there was one night where I couldn't get cocaine mm. and by this time I'm already on cocaine and cocaine was working for me at the point but it felt like when I took it God came down and kissed me on the lips that's oh, how yeah. strong it was at the time of course it was and then I broke into the family home to steal some of the money, and I did. And my stepdad caught me, and I ended up putting it back. But it wasn't really about putting the money back. It was about the action. And that's important to highlight because I didn't know I was an addict. I had no idea I was an addict, and that made me feel there's, there's guilt and shame, right? Guilt is over the action, but shame is how you internalise who you are. So shame then becomes, I'm a piece of shit, I'm a scumbag for mm-hmm, doing this. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't understand why I would steal from my brother's cancer fund. And and then when he was really at the end of his life, you know, his last ever Christmas, I'd been using cocaine for days and I was too wasted to enjoy Christmas with him. And he actually woke up on Christmas Day for us as a family so we could spend it together because um, he'd been sleeping for like two days at a time. He was on palliative care. And he woke up Christmas morning and I'd been on a binge. Mm. You know, the heart's pounding, I've got the cotton mouth, the nose is full like like it's cement. Um, and that was my last Christmas with him. And I don't say these things with any guilt or shame now because I've made my amends now and I've, all the good work I'm doing, I do with my brother with me, I believe. I love um, that. I love that. But that's that's like, people sometimes ask, did your brother's illness turn you into an addict? Did the grooming turn you? And I was like, no, I was always an addict. Mm-hmm. I was always an addict, just waiting for something to be addicted to. Um, but what these experiences did was they magnified it and they really sped up the process between, I think my escalation into the world of addiction happened really quickly because these traumas were happening and they were unresolved traumas and there was no help anywhere for it. And another example I give is when I was um, in primary six, I broke my left arm. 
And when I broke my left arm, my mum took me to A&E and they gave me an x-ray that day and a stookie that day mm-hmm. and a treatment plan that day and a follow-up until the arm was healed, then they stuck you off, then your arm's well and you can go back out and use it. But I ended up in hospital a lot of times with addiction and mental health and trauma. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever said, you've got addiction, you need help today. Or you've got trauma, you need help today. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you've got mental health issues, let's get you help today, let's get you in a treatment centre, let's get you a psychologist. No plan. None of that happened. So if the same level of care was there for mental health and trauma and addiction... I love that. Then yeah. these problems might have happened. They might have been solved before I got to the point of stealing from cancer funds, and that doesn't justify my actions. I need to be accountable for my behaviour and make amends for it, which I have. But if the social structures were were running the way they should have been, then I would have got. I'd have got help in high school when I was screaming out. No, for it. yeah, exactly. And the escalation wouldn't have happened. Exactly. So at, at, at that point, I mean, <clears throat> I, you had a lot of trauma. A lot. You had the porn addiction. You were groomed. Drugs and alcohol addiction. You had the death of your grandfather, DJ, diagnosed with cancer, an operable cancer, so he was going to die. Mm -hmm. But your gran, or in your book, right, there's two (coughs) people that stand out in your book for me as as your grandfather and your Mm -hmm. mum. Your mum is a very strong, strong, strong woman. During that time, um, with your grandfather and DJ as well. Right. But your grand when when your grandfather died, your grand went downhill very quickly. O- overnight. Yeah. Overnight. She yeah. suffered with bipolar and So my granny had um by the time my granny was twenty four, she'd already had five children. Um and she'd suffered a lot of mental health issues at a time again when people when it was misunderstood. So she'd be detained in mental health institutions but without maybe the, the treatment you need long term. But she had an then more stabilised life and then when my granddad passed away it was like overnight it was like honest to God overnight do you think overnight the mental health problems that your grand had suffered came back to suffer she couldn't she couldn't Mm. she couldn't really deal with them again also because she never had the treatment in place that would have helped her long term and is is that your your mum's mum and dad or your your mum's mum and dad and did because I'm I've looked into my mental health and I think there's a bit when I went to do ayahuasca there's a bit in that but you have to look through your ancestral line and, and stuff like that So, and I found it very very interesting that it's came to us I feel as if it's down to me to change what's happened and it has all of that commitment and you'd probably take a bit of that as well Aidan you know the feeling of I am doing the right thing here I'm changing Break, it breaking the cycle. So, so, what, what, no. was any of that did you see any what was happening to your grand to your mum or was your mum strong in terms of mental health or what, what would you say? So I wouldn't want to word it as, no, as no, weak no. or strong but what I would say is that my grand didn't have the tools to cope and right. uh, deteriorated overnight and it was she was ill for the last 17 years of her life and she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, she had strokes, vascular dementia, um, paralysed on the left side of her body after strokes and lots of stuff had happened Um my mum always says to me, she would always, you know, she's always the one that never gave up on me when I was at my worst. And even, even, even when I was stealing from family and she'd watched her baby son, you know, pass away through cancer. Mm-hmm. She's watching her middle son pass away through addiction slowly. Mm-hmm. That's when it was a slow suicide, wow. basically. Mm-hmm. She always, and she still says to me, we have two choices. We can lie down and be a victim or we can get back up and fight. Um, she would like always, that. always tell me that. And she bought me this poster 
by Babe Ruth, the remember the baseball player? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And it, it literally says on it, it's hard to beat a person who never gives up. And she stuck it on the wall. So I'd be convulsing all the time in, in my room because I'd end up staying back with them sometimes and she had this poster up and it's still up. It's, it's You walk in my house now at the front door, it's the first thing you see. Um, so she never gave up. And even when even when doctors said Declan was definitely passing away, she's like, well, I'm not accepting that until the moment it happens, so we'll try everything. And um, the only thing she wouldn't do, she wouldn't she wouldn't force Declan to do anything he didn't want mm-hmm. to do. So it was always with his blessing. And when Declan eventually decided, I just want to stay at home until I pass away now, then we accepted that. But until Declan said that, my mum was like, well, we'll try everything. Um, she doesn't believe in giving up. And she was the same at times... We'd be in the cancer ward with Declan, and then she's going to St John's Hospital. So the cancer ward would be in Edinburgh Sick Kids, and St John's is in Livingston. And my mum would be going from there to St John's Hospital to care for my granny. She tried to care for my granny at home for a while, and then my granny was in a nursing home, and we'd be there all the time. We practically lived between see between my brother and my granny. We practically lived in hospital wards and nursing homes for wow. so long. But my mum like. She just doesn't give up and she lives for her family and she still does to this day. We call her Super Nana because she's just, she she cares so much about family over everything else. And she says to me about my kids, she says, you'll sneeze and they'll grow up. So she's always telling me, appreciate the moment, appreciate yeah, everything. 100%. Appreciate everything. I'm shaking that. When, um, when my book, when I first wrote the book and I was trying to get it out there, it was getting rejected all the time. But it was my mum that kept saying, they're wrong, they're wrong, you're supposed to do this, keep going, keep going. So, I mean, I could speak to you for about five hours about how incredible this woman is. Yeah, yeah you podcast, speak, you speak. <laughs> another yeah. podcast just in your mummy, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, because obviously, <laughs> you're, you're, uh, that's what I took from you, your, uh, your grandfather was very influential in your life, mm-hmm. and your mum as well. Yeah. Even she's wrote a book herself, but it's just unpublished, so Yeah, she wrote yeah. one called DJR Braveheart, yeah. and that was some of the seeds being planted for me to write one as well. Amazing, amazing that that, that, that just shows coming down and, and your mum's a strong one as if she's got that for your gran and it's it's good that you've that poster means a hell of a lot to you and it's probably that poster's probably got you through some dark days even some, some mega dark days See when I'm trying to achieve things like even trying to get a charity set up it took me two years and that's a long hard process yeah. there were times I wanted to quit and I would see that poster and I was like, no, we don't quit, yeah. man. We just yeah. keep going. We don't quit. I like that. And and the the obviously the, you do you, you you the charity you touched on it, so let's let's speak about it. So what's the charity called that that, that took two years but you got there? It's, Anything it's, is possible. It's called the Scheme Livingston. So we reckon that me and my friend Mark, who done the front cover, we grew up in Heatherbank and Ladywell, and we we're walking around during the pandemic and we we're like, what can we do to make a difference? What was missing for us? And he's a, an artist and a musician, painter in his own right. And we said there was never a creative hub for us. Like We're recognising all the talents we've got later in life. Yeah. It should have been there all the time. So we said, right, we're going to use, because there's a drugs death crisis going on in Scotland, and we feel it in our community too. Mega. We're going to use uh, creative measures to support anyone who needs it. But then we're like, so what structure? We can't do a business because we want it to be free to use. Always it has to be free. We have to remove the barrier of cost. So it can't be a business. It can't be a social enterprise because that's a profit model. It can only be a charity. And then you have to get a board and a business plan and a constitution and do your research and network. And and from all of that to then you have to apply to Oscar. That's the charity regulators. And you have to prove that it's... Um, 
for the the good of the public and you're not mm. using a charity to just get yourself a yeah. wage mm-hmm. so because we want to be paid to do it full time so we had to to prove that this wasn't just some exercise for us to get away that we were doing this for the, the good of the community and we, we got our charitable status in october um, and now the next part of the journey is trying to get funding so we're now f- applying for funds so that's where we're at Aye, brilliant so that's, uh, uh, I, mean, that's, that's I know it's hard work because obviously you have all the all the legal stuff when it comes to charity all the governance when it yeah. comes to uh, and, uh, and there charity. is a lot of uh, as you said there's a lot of bad press about charity work now yeah. if, because people are doing it doing it for that that business reason but we spoke about that before uh, I, I, I'd like to, to speak obviously charity work that, that you're doing and, and, and you mentioned the, the real pandemic here which is drugs and suicide and and what goes away way we having a weekend it's not just a weekend in drugs for your health it's a weekend in drugs the debt the gambling you know that that gets people to stand in a chair and, and let's face it suicide mm-hmm. is massive I, I could sit here and it's shocking and rhyme and rhyme recently people very close to me that I've lost you're probably the same <sighs> Do you think there's still not enough talked about suicide? I know that, that you had suicidal thoughts from a very young age. Do you think that that, 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 there's, that that there's enough getting said? Do you think it's coming to the surface at all? Or do you think we've even scraped the... the, the... I think that we are at the beginning of change and I think it's going to take some years before we tackle everything because all of it to me is intertwined suicide, trauma, addiction, social deprivation, mental health, all these things are intertwined. Mm -hmm. We have the worst, and I'm not skipping over suicide to drugs-related deaths, but a lot of people who are um, dying of drugs-related deaths are potentially suicidal people who are self-soothing, self-medicating, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who end up in suicide figures, uh, not all of them, but many of them will probably have addiction issues because they're trying to self-medicate. So the figures so, will only tell you so much, right? Right, okay. But we do have the worst drugs-related death and figures in Europe. In Europe, no, yeah, I've seen that. By far. Mm-hmm. It's been like that for a long time, though. Yeah, so this is generations and decades of issues in this country. Um, everything from drug policy to opportunities to social deprivation to intergenerational trauma. And I think... Um, we're only at the beginning now of having the conversations and at the beginning now of tackling it. Like, where I grew up, me and the boys weren't going to get a Costa coffee and sit and chat about our feelings, were we? No, we were We were going to get a bottle and a gram. You and, better believe it. And yeah, then the conversation is the conversation's not even real anymore. And it's the, a conversation, if you said anything real in that heightened state, the next day it would get played down. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're just at the beginning of making it safe for people to talk but it's not even just about talking it's about what are we putting into our communities to to change things long, ter- long term right mm-hmm. the, the high school I went to I heard they don't have an art teacher for first year students today so I, I, I didn't go there I, I finished there 20 years ago and 20 years later there's no one in first year getting taught art now I don't know if that's 100% true but someone told me that recently but it's just an example of um, where's the chance to become something no, if it's if, when when do things change? Like if someone told me in high school and and recognised you're a great writer, then I'd have got excited about writing. Cause see, writing and creating and doing all this kind of stuff, that's a drug that substances can't even get close to. Now, if someone told me from an early age, look at this exciting stuff you can do with your life, then I'd have gone down that path. 
And if someone said, on here's here's a pathway, you can go to this college, or you can go to this uni, or you can do a placement here, or you can do this, then there's opportunities. But if you go to a school and you're not even getting taught art in first year, and I'm not saying everyone has to be an artist, but it's one example of a different choice in life. But if you're in an area that's like, yeah, it's just the same as it's always been, there's a crap industry to work in, you'll work for someone else, you'll make no enough money to survive, you're going to get beat around the head with politics constantly. Um, it's quite a depressing life. Here's a drug that takes it all away, though. Mad what drink people got escapism. So it's crazy for a lot of people. And, and you, you, you mentioned it when you're getting fed that and fed that. Mind is the most powerful thing in the world. What you think you become. And we spoke about it, touched on it previously. If you were getting fought, fed the thoughts, listen, you're an absolutely amazing writer. You should go with us. You should be dreaming your dream because we spoke about visualization and how powerful it is. You wouldn't have needed the drugs because you would have had that vision, you'd have had that goal, that visualisation which you, you use in this stage. It's mad. Mm. No one taught us that though at the time. Like where I came from as well, if you'd said, I'm gonna be an author, you get battered for that. Yeah. No, yeah. You'd get jumped for it because it would seem like you were thinking above your station. Rather than trying to tell each other, by the way, we're all capable of anything. We're all we done um just a wee independent movie with my friends in it. Um just a really short two minute thing to promote one of my new books that will hopefully come out soon. And it was just for fun. Will come out soon. Yeah, which will come out soon. Yes. It, was, it, was, it was just for for fun, but you should have seen them all come alive and take Brilliant. part in this creative process. And it gave them a sense of purpose and you got all the same uh, camaraderie and all that kind of Love stuff it. without the substances and destruction. Now imagine we were nurtured to do that from a young age and taught that from a young age. Like We get asked... Why is the Scottish football team rubbish compared to all these other um, countries? Because they've got a bit of culture from my own age that teaches them this stuff. Right. Uh, that's that's what I think's missing. There's no there's no getting away from it. Like I don't want to be disrespectful to my country. I, I love being from Scotland, but there's no use being proud about where you come from and not changing what's wrong. There's something wrong in our culture, and it's been there. I would say since before I was born. You know, my biological father never got the help and opportunities he needed, and if he did, maybe I wouldn't have had my attachment issues and I'd have had a loving dad in my life, and maybe my life would have been different. I can only guess at all of that. I do believe that intergenerational trauma, social deprivation, lack of opportunity, a culture of drinking and drug use was there before I was even born, and then you're born into it, and then you've got all these unhealthy ideas about what it means not just to be a male, but a person growing up in these schemes and what's to be expected from you. And your only tools for resolving anything are violence or slagging people off and putting them down. And Trumps. and then you're leaving school with no qualifications and you're going into an environment where you can't... You're told what's happiness, having a house and having a car and having all this stuff and, like, well, how are you supposed to get it then? And then we blame... We, <laughs> Keeps the tools together. We, yes. blame, we blame people for becoming drug dealers or whatever else. It's like, well, give them a real opportunity to become a real mm. person in Love this that. world. And then maybe they won't choose acquisitive crimes or anything else like that. So um, I could probably rant all day about this. Oh, thing. yeah, but I can see but, it. But that's, no, mate, that's exactly what happened to you, Aidan. Because right? obviously it got to a point in your addiction, right? All the trauma with the death of your, your grandfather, a, your brother... Mm. Um, it got to a point that you wanted to, obviously you wanted to go away. I mean, you just end wanted it. to end, end your life. But you get given an opportunity mm -hmm. to go to Canada. Mm -hmm. So you did from what? your friend, Alan, I don't know if that's his name. Yes, yes. His real name or his... That's, that's his real name. That's his real name. Yeah. Right, so, so, but then going to Canada, it 
you saw, because obviously you were taking cocaine, right, mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Then when you went to Canada, you were getting the pure cocaine. Mm-hmm. Before it was over here. None before, of the council before, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It felt so, it was wow. like snorting so diesel. So that went down. Smell the fuel through the the the, the, the So that went yeah. down another path. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that, mate. It was um, by the time I got to Canada, it was I had one foot in this camp and one foot in that camp. And what I mean by that is, I had experienced recovery meetings before I went there. Um, and when I got there, I was desperately trying to change. I actually thought I was going to go to Canada and find myself in the mountains, surrounded by wildlife and all of that. It was complete delusional thinking. But there was um, a real serious drug using lifestyle that I was involved in. I also started volunteering in homeless hostels and doing some recovery meetings. And it was in the homeless hostels when I was serving uh, tea and soup and coffee to people who were really homeless. And when I say really homeless, I mean they weren't on their pal's couch, they were on the streets. In that few minutes of interaction with them, it wasn't just serving them food. It was the first time in maybe weeks or months that they would have had someone actually listen to them. So you would serve them the sandwiches and stuff and listen to what was going on for them. And it was in that interaction that I started to get these feelings inside. And the feelings I couldn't articulate at the time were self-worth and self-esteem and, and dignity and respect and value because I was doing something selfless to help other people. Mm. I wasn't getting paid to be there. I had no ulterior motive. You know, and this is how I started to undo the guilt and shame over stealing from family and being a bad partner to women and being involved in violence and all of that by doing good. That's what planted the seed for me to want to get into education. And I still didn't know how I was going to do that, but I was like, I need to go to college and do something in my life. And that's what led me to coming back to Scotland excuse me, and doing a course at West Lothian College. Brilliant. That was that was when when you went to Canada, you come back and that gave you the, the drive from sitting with the old people. This is this is my purpose. You had a this light bulb is, kind of moment, so you did yeah. think your kind of your brain was, kind of switches a bit, right? Was, I need again, to be doing something different here. It was the way I didn't have the words for the language for it because I hadn't been educated yet, but I knew I was feeling stuff and I knew it felt good. And I was I was fed up feeling like a scumbag. I was fed up hurting people, I was fed up letting people down. Doubting yourself, I was fed up, shitting yourself yeah, all and the then, time. And then I was doing this stuff and it was for people that I identified with the people as well. Mm-hmm. So I might have been on this side of the counter and they might have been on that yeah, side of the counter. Yeah. We had the same story. Same story, that vibe, that connection. Yeah. And when I met you the day, then that type of connection that you're feeling. And it's therapy for you. When you were sitting, you're saying you're getting all these feelings. You don't realise that when you're talking and helping people, <laughs> no wonder you go home and you start feeling a wee bit better mm-hmm. because you're actually you're, you're therapying yourself when you're helping someone you, you, you get a buzz from mm-hmm. it because obviously you're parting or you're giving them some kind of knowledge that you have and you're imparting that knowledge and to them that you, they can use you're, you're, you're becoming when you're doing stuff like that you're no longer part of the problem, you're part of the solution. I like mm. that, no part of the problem, part mm. of the solution. Mm-hmm. And that like was my first experience with being in the solution, was helping other people. And then where it really changed was going to West Loading College because that's where I started to get nurtured by lecturers who believed in me and who would that say, belief. they would say things like, Aiden, you're really intelligent, Aiden, you're going to go really far in life. And one called Maggie said, Aiden, you're going to go far, I can feel it in my bones. You know, and she See, made she made me believe it. I felt it there when you yeah. said it, w- 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 which is it's class, and it, it it only takes one person at that stage of your life to kickstart you. 
uh, into your dream and your visual. They, they spoke, we've spoke a lot about the trauma and, and, and uh, that you've been through in your life, but sitting here now, Aidan, listen, you're not sitting there, it's been a long, long journey. What tools in your locker do you have on a daily basis? What do you turn to? What gives you your drive? What, what do you get up for? What's your why to get up in the morning and become the best version of yourself? And what tools can you use or give advice to people that are listening that are going through the same stuff as what we've been through? So my tools, what keeps me well is recovery meetings, going to recovery fellowships. Is that CAA, reco- what, what, so what type we, of, because so different many meetings. There's there's tradition, there's lots of different meetings. We don't tend to name them in any kind of media right. because it's, it's kind of against the traditions, but there are meetings like Narcotics Anonymous, right. Alcoholics Anonymous, yep. Cocaine Anonymous, there's Gamblers Anonymous, there's, mm-hmm. there's Overeaters Anonymous, there's Sex Addicts Anonymous, yep. so... There's plenty of different types of recovery fellowship and it's not for everyone, but for some people it, it works really well. Mm-hmm. That's my medicine. So I live a, an abstinent-based recovery, so I don't touch any substances. Mm-hmm. So on Christmas Day, I'll be four and a half years substance-free. Some well people, done, Way! Thanks very much. Get in there. Um, some people call it um, clean or abstinent or sober. I don't really mind what language people use. For me, it's just that's, that's where I'm at. What I get off on these days is the creative process is helping other people is making a difference in my community um, I do that through my charity through speaking events through you know, doing the TV show about trauma I do uh, trauma training as freelance I I'm in a place now where I'm constantly walking in a new and exciting territory and that's taking positive risks like at the start at the end of last year I decided this year I was going to go full time as a writer and speaker not knowing what would happen because I went away and got educated. I got myself a, a degree in social sciences and then mm-hmm. I got a master's degree in social work. And I decided not to become a social worker. No disrespect to the profession. It's just I was already in the process of becoming a speaker and a writer by this point. My book had came out. I noticed the difference I could make with my voice and my experience. Love it. And so I chose that pathway instead. So that's what I get out for now. And I've got I've got two manuscripts for new books and I've got an agent who represents me and she's you know, pitching it to publishers and I've I've got on my vision board that, you know, 2023 is the year where we get another book out, so... And if it's on the board, you know what happens, it's, on the it's board. crazy. Have uh, you got a name for it, Aidan? Yeah, the, so, new book? so there's two books, so it'll, it'll depend which one, um, it'll depend which Let's one. It's obviously Euphoric Recall is the one that's out, but I've got two other manuscripts written. Okay. One's called Forever Young and the other one's called Trolleys in the Almond. Uh, trolleys, tro- trolleys in the what? Trolleys in the almond. So that is. I love the sound of that book already. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about. Um, so it's about me and my friend Colin, who I talk about here. But uh, me and Colin need a book of our own because I could only touch very briefly on the three years we lived together. And I describe trolleys in the almond as being like um, jackass meets football factory meets Dumb and Dumber. And that's kind of like our experience of living together in those three years, like <laughs> two dafties that end up in drug wars. I love it. I can't wait to read that. And it's called Trolleys in the Almond because we've got the River Almond in West Lothian and, and mm-hmm. a lot of trolleys end up punted in there. And in the river. And that's in the vision board, trolleys and Almond, yeah. isn't it? Trolleys it's happening then, yeah. you know that. And the second one's called Forever Young, which is um, fictionalised based on real experiences, but Forever Young's a lot more to do with the so-called lad culture. That we um, spoke about slagging the. See, you know what? It's, people look at the lad culture, but it's, it's about what's behind the lad culture. You know, the stuff we spoke about today. Mm-hmm. It's far too easy to go, oh, lad culture. I want to tell people, no, this Target. is what led to lad culture. Yeah. 
So that's what for our youngs about. The story that gets to just it's very easy to labelise things and just put it as that. I but don't I don't know which book will come out next. I'll, I'll let my agent work on that and we'll see when it goes. And this Brilliant, is mate. Uh, this is about always gets how do we finish the podcast? But yeah, I think this is, uh, is, is a good point. Uh, and Eden, I'd just like to take this point to say thank you very much for coming on. Listen, I know you got a feeling when you meet Sunday, so. Yeah, it'll not be the last time we're meeting. That's no, a thanks fact. so much. I've That's a fact, you. Aiden. And it has, we're all about real, raw and relevant. The podcast's all about mental health. It's about yeah. helping people. You'll be able to subscribe, follow ourselves. We'll share Aiden's website. and, uh, and Oh, your links well. will be in the, in the podcast. We will always link to YouTube and that kind of stuff. Me, all your Click links. Awesome. Webs, all the clicks. <laughs> yeah. All the clicks. Yeah. Awesome. But thanks for coming. For coming down from Livingston to Glasgow, mate. Yeah, and meeting us. Thanks for picking me up for the yeah. city centre. No, no bother, mate. <laughs> Anytime. We'll drop you off. Don't I was going to say, I hope you're yeah, dropping yeah, right, no, no. drop you off. <laughs> but thanks, mate. We wish you all the best. Likewise. For the future, mate. Right, your books, I'm sure, will be in contact. Yeah, we'll be getting, meet we'll up getting for you back on, yeah. Bit of food awesome. and that kind of stuff, mate. But for now, we are the Devlin Brothers, and we are... Real, raw, and we're relevant. <laughs>